Welcome to another exciting episode of the Bat Segundo Show, except that this show is actually the second part of a two-part conversation recorded before a live audience involving Paul Murray. Now, if you missed part one, also known as show number 370, also referred to as Phyllis Presents if you're reading the special handbook, then go back and listen to that one first. Now, this program begins with Paul Murray reading a section from Skippy Dies and continues with a Q&A section involving the audience and our roving correspondent. This program also contains alarming sexual references, considerable laughter, and if you listen really closely, an aborted haiku. Anyway, I'll shut up. Please enjoy! Um, okay. Uh, this is, um... Like, the book, the book is set in, uh, um... A boys' school, Seabrook College for Boys which is on the south coast of Ireland, about 10 miles outside of Dublin. Uh, and Skippy is this, as I said, like 14-year-old, um, kind of somewhat reclusive, shy boy. Um, and he has fallen in love. He's a boarder in the school, and he's fallen in love with a girl who plays frisbee in the yard of the girls' school next door. Um, and he doesn't know who she is or what her name is. Um, but tonight, at this Halloween dance, um, the girls from... St. Bridget's, the girls' school, have been, are going to come to this dance with the boys from Seabrook. Um, so this is, this is what's happening. Um, by four o'clock, except for the small gaggle that scurries back and forth between the art room and the sports hall, arms heaped with dyed, by dyed black netting, papier-mâché skulls, partially eviscerated pumpkins with craft knives still jutting from their flanks, the school is utterly deserted. Or so it appears. Beneath the superficial emptiness, the air groans with the freight of anticipation. The silence shrieks, the space trembles, crammed with previsions so feverish and intense that they begin to threaten to flicker into being there in the depopulated hallways. Meanwhile, above the old stone campus, somber grey clouds gather, laden and growling with pent-up energies of their own. Upstairs, although the sun has not yet quite set, Halloween is in full swing. The gothic environs of the junior rec room abound with bedsheet ghosts, plastic-fanged vampires, rubicund Osama bin Ladens, and rogue Jedi. Frankenstein's monster applies contusions to Victor Hero, deceased. Two incompletely wrapped mummies quarrel over the last roll of toilet paper. The Scarlet Pimpernel hatches a plan with the Green Goblin to buy drink with the Goblin's big brother's fake ID. Here and there, older boarders from the higher years, still waiting around for lifts home, look on scornfully and make sarcastic remarks, but the boys barely hear, being too caught up in the moment and in their costumes where they feel curiously at home, seeming to inhabit them in a way quite different to the awkward relationships they have with their school uniforms. Now, as the sun's last rays glimmer out, the air momentarily shivers, tightening, drawing in on itself as though experiencing a chill. Through the window, the first car headlights sweep up the avenue, a caravan of others wink in the distance beyond the tennis courts. An elf and what looks like a pint-sized science teacher bustle out of their dorm room to call on another three doors down. Yes? Dennis, quarter opening the door. Are you nearly ready? Skippy says. I am, but I'm waiting for Niles, says Dennis. Strolling up the corridor, clicking his fingers, Mario Bianchi appears in a dark brown leather jacket, a pair of impenetrably black sunglasses, and a glistening patina of hair gel. Are you bitches hot to trot? It's about to start. <laughs> Who are you supposed to be, the funds? I'm going as the famous stud, Mario Bianchi, Mario Bianchi says. <laughs> the snap of his gum. Dennis just rolls his eyes. What in God's name is that smell? Ruprecht covers his nose with a tweedy sleeve. That, my friend, is aftershave. Someday, if you ever start shaving and you stop being a gay, you will maybe use it yourself. <laughs> it smells like you've been pickled, Ruprecht says. Mario chews his gum, unperturbed, runs a hand through his slimy hair. So what are we waiting for? 
Niall, Dennis says, still keeping himself semi-concealed behind the door. Mario turns his attention to Skippy, panning slowly down from his from panning slowly up from his runners, fitted out with tiny wings, to his crepe paper hunting hat, which sports a long speckled feather. Who are you? Wait, let me guess. You're that faggy elf from that gay game of yours. <laughs> Skippy's been working on his costume for the last three nights, and it does look impressively elvish. Over a green tank top of Ruprecht's that has shrunk in the wash, he slung a quiver of glow stick arrows of light. A plywood and tinfoil sword of songs hangs from his belt in a scabbard made from tennis racket grip, along his side a rolled up map of Hopeland. Ruprecht's outfit is decidedly more prosaic. Slacks, tie, horn-rimmed spectacles, and a brown tweed jacket with leather elbow patches that is too long and insufficiently wide. Uh, Von Blowjob, did anybody explain to you that you're supposed to wear a costume? Ruprecht blinks in surprise. I'm Hideo Tamashi, he says. Mario looks blank. Professor Emeritus of Physics at Stanford? Revolutionized the entire field of cosmology? Probably the most important scientist since Einstein? Oh, that Hideo Tamashi, Mario says. <laughs> Dennis shakes his head. I have to hand it to you, Skippy, blowjob. I didn't think you could possibly look any nerdier than you already are. But this is something really special. <laughs> what about you, Dennis? What do you, Skippy says, who are you going as? Dennis is dressed as the school principal, and Dennis's roommate, Niall, is dressed as the school principal's wife, Trudy. It takes a moment for the others to realize the full genius of this double act. Then the first giggles emerge, transmuting swiftly into guffaws. What are you clans laughing at? Dennis barks. Laughing for chumps. Take a note, Trudy. Resignedly, Niall reaches into his handbag and produces a clipboard. Vendoran suspension. Jester, expulsion. The wop I once served up on a pizza. No, wait, a calzone. God damn it, Trudy. Why the hell are you writing so slowly? You're not pregnant again, are you? No, master. Sorry, master. Niall cringes in falsetto. That's the spirit. Niall claps him on the back, sending a rugby ball tumbling from between Niall's legs, swaddled in a blue and gold Seabrook jersey. If he finds out about this, you are so dead, Skippy says. You're deader than dead. Jester, when I want your opinion, I'll ask for it. Dennis continues, then turns to the band of maskers who've halted on their way downstairs, on their way downstairs to mill around the doorway. Fix that hair. Close that mind. Repeat after me. Now, are you boys ready? A Seabrook boy is always ready. Ready to work. Ready to play. Ready to listen to his teachers, especially the greatest educator of them all, Jesus. Uh, Jesus said to me once, Greg, what's your secret? And I said, Jesus, study your notes. Get to class. Shave that beard. You show up on your first day in the job dressed like a hippie. Of course they're going to crucify you. I don't care whose son you are. In this, in this fashion, the foe acting principal and his ersatz wife leave the room and are ushered to the head of the crowd to lead the procession downstairs the laughter of the other boys ringing around them and split more or less equally between admiration of their bravado and gleeful anticipation of the moment they got caught. Outside, night has fallen, utterly black, moon and stars inked out by storm clouds that seem even now still to be arriving on the scene. The air is full of staticky rain that doesn't fall but hangs tingling, waiting for you to walk into it. That's not all it's full of. From the leaf-strewn laneway leading down to Ed's Donut House, from the avenue that snakes past ladder have gone, coats are shrugged off to reveal equally bare arms, bare midriffs, and as much cleavage as they can get away with. It seems the girls have by and large played down creativity in favour of the opportunity to dress slutty. <laughs> Naughty nurses sashay up with kinky cowgirls, A pneumatic Lara Croft in thigh-high boots carries the nacreous tail fin of a mermaid. S&M cop, porno Cleopatra, four woozy princesses tripping arm in arm in princess heels up the bumpy laneway. Two catwomen already arching their backs at each other, a host of Bethany's in various guises familiar from the videos, all flocking to join the line that extends down the steps from the doors of the sports hall, through which music swirls and colours glint like promises. 
The boarders attempting to take this in are for a moment reluctant to move. It's as though they've stumbled upon Xanadu right here in their own school, <laughs> and they fear, as, they fear they might somehow shatter the illusion, scatter this heady dream to the four winds. Then, as a man, they think better of it and hurry down to join the queue. The line progresses swiftly forward, but before the party can begin, there remains one last trial to get through. The sports hall, antechamber, where, seated alone at a table, Father Green is taking entrance money. The light here is sterile and unforgivingly bright, reducing them, no matter how glamorous or outlandish their attire, once more to children. As they shuffle by him to drop their crumpled fives into the bucket, the priest thanks them in an impersonal, excessively courteous tone, keeping his eyes firmly averted from the almost universally sacrilegious costumes, not to mention the acres of goose-pimpled flesh. Still, the transaction leaves them with a strange chill of ignominy, and they hurry away as quickly as they, Oh, Mr. Juster! Skippy reluctantly turns back from the door. What's the problem? Didn't he see him put in his money? The priest slashes long and surprisingly feminine, waft upwards, uncloaking the coal-black stare. You appear to be losing a wing. He extends a knotted finger. Looking down, Skippy sees that the feathers have come unpinned from the ankle of one dragon-skin boot. He bends quickly and adjusts it, then mumbling his thanks, hastens into the hole. The others have disappeared, everything's dark, and Skippy stumbles around for what seems like an age, bumping his way through witches, mutants, trolls and terrorists, unable to make out anyone he knows. Every available inch of space has been covered with black cloth, decorated in turn with crescents, stars, mystical runes. Black balloons float overhead like lost souls, ropey black webs drip from the eaves, mutilated mannequins climb out of the walls, and over the DJ booth where Wallace Willis is spinning the discs, a gap-toothed pumpkin exults as though presiding over the bacchanal. When his eyes have adjusted to the darkness, Skippy finds he can identify most of the male half of the revelers. That Zeus there, in cotton wool beard and bathrobe, is Odysseus Antapopopoulos. It's the first time I've been able to say that in the... <laughs> the IRA man in camouflage gear and balaclava can only be merged of Aldra, but some of them still defy him. That eerie death, for instance, face lost beneath the hood of his robe, standing six and a half feet tall at least. Who's he? And eerier still, the pink rabbit jitterbugging feverishly over beside Vincent Bailey and Hector O'Looney. And these girls, can they really be the same ones he sees every day, queuing up in Texaco for cigarettes and phone credit? Have they secretly all the time been this? If it weren't for the worn-down lines of the basketball court underfoot, the only trace of the hall's previous incarnation, Skippy'd think he'd somehow wandered into the wrong place. Hello, Skippy, a sepulchral voice says. Happy holiday of the dead. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff, says Skippy. Isn't this incredible? It's pretty amazing. Would you like some fruit punch? <laughs> okay. Elf follows Zombie to the table where Jeeker's Prendergast is ladling punch from a huge vat. Dennis is there too with Ruprecht. The former has just suspended Jeekers for his gay costume, 80s tennis ace Mats Volander, and then expelled him for not ensuring there is booze in the punch. A moment later, Niall bursts onto them. Hey, everybody, Mario just got turned down by a girl. I was not turned down, you faggot who was dressed as a woman. Mario snaps, arriving behind him. I told her she is a diabetic and she must go and take her insulin. I saw the whole thing, says Niall with an unrepentant air of jubilation. Wipe out! Keep laughing, Mr. Funny, and when this bitch comes back from taking her insulin, you are going to look pretty silly. Well, even if she doesn't, Jeff begins consolingly. She will, says Mario. Yes, but even if she doesn't, there are plenty of other ladies here anyway. And most of them are drunk, Dennis adds. 
fascinating Ruprecht muses to Skippy. The whole thing seems to work on a similar principle to a super collider. You know, two streams of opposingly charged particles accelerated till they're just under the speed of light, then crashed into each other. Only here, alcohol accentuated secondary sexual characteristics and primitive rock and roll beats take the place of velocity. <laughs> Skippy's gone to replenish his punch. Skippy, Ruprecht sighs quietly and looks at his watch. Patrick, Dan Knowledge, Noonan, and Owen, MC, Sexecutioner, Flynn, Pimperl by, plastic Uzis tucked under their arms, the faint frisson of tension still detectable between them, the aftermath of a heated debate earlier today over who was going to come as Tupac, which debate Patrick won, which means Owen is now waddling along in a fat suit dressed as Biggie Smalls. The squalling, the squalling riff from Cream's Layla blast from the speakers in the DJ booth, Wallace Willis nods to himself, oh yes. I'd like to say a few words about bullying. Dennis, in an authentic sheen of perspiration, is declaiming to anyone who listens. Here at Seabrook, we simply will not tolerate bullying of a second-rate nature. Bullying must meet the same standards of excellence we expect everywhere else. <laughs> if you need help with your bullying, please not hesitate to speak to me or Father Green or Mrs. Timoney or Mr. Kildoffer. And then grabbing his arm, Jeff Spoke says, Hey, Skippy, look, isn't that your girlfriend over there? Skippy? It's just like in a film. The music dims to nothing, voices fade out, everything melts away, leaving only her. She's talking with her friends dressed in a long white gown, a slender tiara woven into her dark hair. She seems to glow like she's lit from within, and even though he's looking right at her, Skippy can't believe how beautiful she is. He looks right at her and he still can't believe it. Hubba hubba, Mario says, like a steak on a barbecue, this bitch is smoking. <laughs> it's, it's lucky for you that you have first dibs, Jester, otherwise she would be the prime candidate for some of Mario's special sauce. <laughs> Keep an eye on him, Skippy, says Dennis. Never trust an Italian. The Nazis did that, and look where it got them. <laughs> you're not, you're not going to throw up again, are you? Ruprecht asks. I can't believe she's here, whisper, Skippy whispers dazedly. Skippy, old pal. Dennis claps a hand on his shoulder. It doesn't make any difference whether she's here or not. As far as you're concerned, she's on the North Pole. She's on the moon. What's the deal with her costume now, I wonder? She looks like one of the elves from Lord of the Rings. Or, or the girl from Labyrinth. You clown, she's obviously Queen Amidala from Phantom Menace. Oh right, you mean that scene in Phantom Menace where she wears a tiara in her hair, the special magical scene that doesn't exist, that scene. <laughs> but Skippy doesn't think she looks like Queen Amidala, or the girl from Labyrinth, or anyone else. He's seen beautiful girls before, in films, on the internet, and pictures pinned to locker doors and dorm rooms. But the beauty this girl has is something bigger, something beyond, with infinitely more sides to it. It's like a mountain with an impossible shape that he keeps trying to climb and falling off, finding himself lying on his back in the snow. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff announces, arriving back in the scene with Titch Fitzpatrick. He's at the school stud. Frisbee, Frisbee girl's identity is about to be revealed. Titch, in a red Formula One jumpsuit crowded with company logos, clearly has other fish to fry tonight. From every side, girls wave and pout and send him amorous glances. Where is she then, he says impatiently. Over there, Jeff points with a decomposing finger, near the DJ booth. Titch presses his lips together and, rising onto his tiptoes, cranes his head over in the direction Jeff's pointing. Inside, Skippy squirms, finding out her name. This is becoming real. Is that what he wants? He can't even tell. She's with three other girls, a G.I. Jane with sharp, intelligent features and bouncy curls, a scuba diver in tight-fitting wetsuit, and an overweight girl in some kind of incredibly voluminous Victorian-type ball gown that keeps slipping down her shoulders. The four of them are huddled together, conferring, Frisbee girl's eyes darting repeatedly from the dance floor to the door, like she's watching out for someone. Laurie Wycombe, Janine Forrest, Shannon Fitzpatrick, Kellyanne Dahoney. Titch reels off the names in a bored voice. I presume you're talking about Laurie Wycombe. 
She's the one in the white dress. Laurie. Who is she? Jeff asks. Uh, Laurie Wakem, did I not just say that? No, I mean, you know, what's her story? Titch shrugs. Just your typical fox rock princess. Is she going out with anybody? Mario says. I don't know, Titch says indifferently. I've seen her with people LA nights. I don't know if she's got a boyfriend. She acts a bit like no one's good enough for her. Frigid, Mario comments. <laughs> so basically, you're saying Skipper here is wasting his time, right, T-Dog? Dennis interprets. You're saying that Skippy fancying her is like some sort of slime or ooze fancying, you know, Giselle. It's like some sort of disgusting slime or algae seeping over to Giselle and telling her to get her coat. <laughs> that's not what he's saying, Jeff objects. He's just saying she acts like no one's good enough for her, but that's because she hasn't met Skippy yet. What's so great about Skippy? No offense, Skippy. Well, okay, he's a very good swimmer, and, and he's nearly finished Hopeland. Actually, Titch remembers, I did see her with Carl a couple of times last week. Instantly, as if it's been sucked into some awful vacuum, all conversation ceases. I saw them together in the mall, Titch says obliviously, and once outside Texaco. I don't know if they're going out. I can ask around if you want. Good idea. You ask Carl, and if he comes over and smashes Skippy's face in, we'll know she's spoken for. Just then, as though sensing the eyes on her, the fat girl in the unfortunate dress turns and squints in their direction. Next thing they know, Titch has bolted into the crowd. Sorry, dude, Noel commiserates. Skippy's gazing at the floor, as if counting the fragments of his shattered life. I think you should go and talk to her anyway, cancels Ruprecht. You fat moron, didn't you hear what he said? Dennis rebuts. He said he'd seen her with Carl. Carl is the key word there. It means get the hell out of the way or start digging your own grave. He only said he'd seen her with Carl. Ruprecht corrects him. There could be any number of explanations for that. Oh, sure, maybe they're in stamp club together, says Dennis. <laughs> Let's just stop talking about it, Skippy says desolately. But Carl, Ruprecht says, why would anybody want to go out with Carl? Because that's what girls do, you idiot, Dennis returns. The more of an asshole a guy is, the more girls he's got lining up to give him blowjobs. That's a scientific fact. <laughs> you can't just say something is a scientific fact, Ruprecht rejoins. <laughs> I just did, fat ass, and what do you know about it anyway? Who the hell ever gave you a blowjob? <laughs> Your mother, Jeff prompts out of <laughs> Your mother, Rupert says to Dennis. She's my stepmother, Dennis corrects sulkily. <laughs> Rupert has a point, though, Niall says. Like, is Carl even here? Can we just stop talking about it? Skippy remonstrates. No, but if they were together, he'd be here, wouldn't he? It seems to me that the only way of establishing the truth is for Skippy to go and talk to this girl, Rupert repeats. Would you all just fucking shut up? Skippy interjects. Just fucking shut up about it, why can't you? Surprised, they fall silent and remain so a moment. Then Mario, with some remark about beavers, turns and plunges <laughs> quixotically into the dance floor. Dennis and Niall follow after him, already chuckling. Ruprecht pats Skippy on the shoulder, then directs another surreptitious glance at his watch. Skippy looks over at Laurie. The other two girls are both speaking to her. She nods without seeming to be listening, thumb jabbing frenetically at her phone. He wishes he'd never told anyone about her, never found out anything about her that he could have gone on just watching her through the telescope. Now, just like Dennis said, even though she's right here, she's on the other side of the world. Don't give up yet, Skippy. <laughs> Jeff's voice sounds in his ear. Strange things happen at Halloween. <laughs> and at that very moment, in the middle of the twin lead guitar break in Hotel California, one of Wallace Willis's all-time favorite solos, the music cuts out and the lights too, and in the interregnum of darkness, there's a fierce peal of thunder, like some huge amorphous black animal snarling right over their heads. Everybody cheers. Skippy's hand tightens on his plywood sword. Leave there. Yes. Paul Burry. Hey. Um.
Are there any questions for the author? No questions. He just read you from his heart and soul. From someone. He's going to ask one of his Oh, there's questions. somebody in the back. Uh, Bethany is sort of, uh, Bethany is kind of a, anytime there's sort of music in the background, uh, it's, it's Bethany. Bethany's sort of a, a kind of a, the next step on flank from Brittany and, and, and uh, Christina Aguilera. So she's, she's walking that sort of, that kind of razor edge between um, entertainment and, and kind of porn that, uh, <laughs> that is the modern um, music entertainment. Using the different font too for Bethany. I, I was curious as to how that came about. Um, yeah, I just wanted it to be like this strange little little package. Uh, like she's this, this sort of strange, like I, I'd sort of written like, initially the book was a lot longer um, than, than it is now. Uh, and part of the reason is because like every character had... Uh, had How much like, longer? It was like a thousand pages. Oh, long. wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so like there was a Bethany backstory and like her mother, her mother was a former Miss Scranton. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so she's just like, she's just this like incredibly, um, one of these, yeah, like terrifying teenage kind of Mickey Mouse Club uh, prodigies who's got like a heart of, I don't even know, like digital circuitry uh, <laughs> and, and just sings all these like terrifying kind of Lolita type um, songs, yeah. yeah. Questions, questions? There. So were there, I, I think you said when you wrote it the beginning, a lot longer. Yeah. What did you, what did you cut, or is there any storylines that you, between characters that you cut and would have liked the story had more time? Yeah, um, I, I sort of, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a history teacher in the book and he's sort of the main adult character. I wanted there, be, there to be some kind of adult, you know, ballast, you know, so you could get, uh, you'd have kind of a breather from the strange kind of sugar-rushed uh, lives of the, of the teenagers. So um, you see something of this history teacher and also he's, he's got a kind of a, a much put upon uh, girlfriend called Hallie, who um, she's American uh, and he's been sort of like weaseling his way out of marrying her for the last kind of couple of years, uh, which is one instance of his He's called, the boys call him Howard the Carrot, and he's just sort of quite a, kind of a cowardly character. Um, so in the first draft, and indeed the second, third, and fourth draft, um, you see, you get her story as well, uh, and it's taken right to the end of the book, um, and it has nothing to do with the school. Um, and ultimately, I kind of made the decision that it needed to be, for one thing, just because it was so long, and the publishers were, were having, uh, like, hysterics, uh, and, uh, like something had to go, and 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 so I thought that, that it, it was also losing something by stepping out, sort of like the microcosm of the school. It was it was just it was losing sort of a focus or an intensity. Um, so even though like I did like what happens with her is she works in a um, she gets a job in a Burns unit in a hospital uh, because I was interested in this whole concept like of narrative and how we narrate our lives, and um, she works in a Burns unit and the, sort of the, the story was that she was. Um, She's working with these very badly burned people, uh, trying to get them to tell stories about themselves. Because one of the big problems with um, burns, apart from like the, the horrific injuries, is that the post-traumatic stress disorder is really is uh, crippling. Yeah. So people's memories stop functioning, and, and they're unable to sort of to perceive the world in in kind of a linear way at all. Uh, and one of the ways you sort of you um, you uh, treat that is just to try and get them to tell stories, tell stories about their youth, tell stories about anything at all, just to, to kind of get them back in the habit of, of um, seeing, seeing, seeing experiences as kind of an unbroken line instead of, instead of something that's com 
repeatedly sort of like broken into by, by sort of the, the, the traumatic memories of the fire, which was like, I thought a very clever idea. Um, so I, I hung on to it like as long as I could, but it was, it just didn't fit. So, so with a certain amount of, of sorrow, I had to, had to chop it. Got it. Question. Um, in light of what you were talking about in terms of trying to go against linearity and the three-act structure, I mean, this book is in three parts. It's packaged in three parts. Yeah, so yeah. Is that, was that sort of a conscious effort to, you know, say down with three act structure. I'm going to do it this way and keep three acts and just kind of play with that. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Like, it, it does. I mean, it, it's it's like I don't I don't really like I didn't want it to be um, like an infinite chest level. Uh, like, I think I think that's that's sort of I think that kind of may have had its day. In fact, like that sort of completely open ended sort of narrative structure because it's it's. Once you read Infinite Jest and you realize, like, you get to the end of, like, a thousand pages and you realize that he's not going to tie it all up. Sorry to anyone who hasn't read Infinite Jest. <laughs> um, uh, then, like, you, do, you don't, you know, you don't, that's, that's, that's the kind of, that's the kind of, uh, uh, the butler, the butler did it. Uh, with, uh, um, that's, that's, that, that in itself is a kind of a, not quite a gimmick, but it's a device, and it's a device that people will get bored of, you know. Um, so you need to find new ways of um, Roland Barth, who I, I read a lot unapologetically, uh, uh, is um, he talks a lot about uh, if you destroy something, if you try and destroy something, it just it just comes back. Like you just sort of preserve the the kind of the dialectic. Um, so what you need to do is like subvert it, you know, by by making fun of us or or sort of just twisting things and tweaking things. And um, I guess that's what I was trying to do with the book. Like I really like. I watched tons of like far too many movies and TV programs and stuff, um, so I wasn't sort of com coming at it with like a, a some kind of puritanical urge to to like or Alan Rob Grier sort of sense of of like I, I puke on the novel and I, I want to you know I, I wanted it to be a, a story on some level that people would enjoy, um, so yeah so it, it does like it does have like a lot of elements like it's got characters and it's got jokes and it's got um, it's got like plot twists and stuff. Um, I, I would argue like sort of it doesn't work sort of like in quite sort of three party type way because um, Skippy dies at the beginning um, and then it sort of tracks back. The first two parts are tracking back to see sort of what happened to him. And then the last part is just dealing with the effects of his, his death. So it is kind of chronologically quite, quite, uh, quite weird. What, what do you trade off? when you are writing for the audience like this? I mean, is there, is, are there certain areas that you went into further because this book is very candid about the teenage lifestyle and drugs and sex and things like that? Yeah. Did you go further in this earlier draft? Were there things that were perhaps just too off-putting for the audience that you were seeking? Or I'm just curious. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't really, I, didn't, I genuinely would try and avoid, I mean, if you, if you start thinking of your audience then, like, you, it's impossible to second guess an audience, you know, because people react in, in in ways that you will will never imagine, you know. So you're on a losing streak with that, and also it'll just you'll just freeze up, you know, if you start worrying about what people will think. Um, so I tried to avoid doing that. Um, that said, I mean, I, I did have more extreme things happening in earlier drafts, and I think it was because uh, I was I sort of I I. Yeah, I, I, it was hard to gauge the right level of, of shockingness, and I was, I was kind of, it, was, it wasn't that I wanted to shock people, it was more that I was worried about censoring myself. I was worried that, you know, um, oh, the editors won't like this, 
scene. So I, I'm going to leave it in there by Jingo, you know, which is a very stupid way of writing a book. Um, <laughs> so, but that, that's what I did. So, so like there was a lot of, for instance, the Bethany uh, yeah. character who writes a lot of these sort of strange porno songs. There, there, were, there were more of those than there needed to be initially. Uh, and um, <laughs> Carl's, there's a kind of very disturbed character called Carl. Um, his stuff was initially, there was a, there was a kind of a humorous, uh, there's a bit where Carl is at home um, uh, looking at porn on, on the internet and he's, he's looking at uh, these kind of toon porn, which is uh, characters from Disney, like you know Pocahontas and the Little Mermaid and uh, like Snow White and so forth having sex with various other tunes, Smurfs having sex and... Uh, imagination or research into this? Uh, <laughs> I, you know, um, uh, no comment. Uh, okay. But uh, so there was a humorous exchange with the, with the publishers, with, uh, with Penguin, uh, because initially they were like, they were saying, oh, I, don't, I think Disney may have copyrights on these <laughs> names, so we're going to have to write to them and say, is it okay for us to have... <laughs> for us to have and I was like, okay, I don't know if they'll go for that, you know? Um, but uh, it turns out... Did you get any yeses? That, yes, it's perfectly okay for uh, it, it, Snow it, it, White and Dwarves 69 or something. <laughs> You've seen that site, man. Yeah, yeah, no, I, no, I, no, I, no <laughs> comments. Yeah. That's one frisky dwarf. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, no, it, it turned out that it was, it was actually legal. Uh, it, was, it was okay. Did the Penguin legal department checked this out, and it was fine. You could use those references. But there was another bit. The Penguin editorial assistant, who's a very nice and a sweet girl called Anna Kelly, said... Um, you have uh, Pocahontas giving a lick out to the Little Mermaid. Um, <laughs> physiologically, that's not actually. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, so, <laughs> uh, Your imagination, <laughs> then, yeah. <laughs> dear Anna, thank you so much for doing that. <laughs> so, if you know any, like the you know the English publishing industry, like it's run by these like these. Very kind of very sweet, very polite uh, 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 women, uh, and so it's like humongously embarrassing email conversation back there. Oh, maybe we should have the Little Mermaid giving a lick out to Pocahontas. <laughs> oh, that seems like the best solution for that. <laughs> oh boy! Anybody have a question to follow that up with? <laughs> questions? Questions? Did this? Did you? Uh, did this, I think this. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, go. Um, so I'm sort of wondering about the question. I wanted to ask about the character of Lori because you sort of seem um, really like at ease and so like people in this sort of boys' world school. Um, and sort of so often those novels you don't really get the perspective of the object of their hormones. Um, and so I just wanted to ask about your motivation or decision to include her and have her own section. Yeah, um, there's, there's, uh, yeah, Laurie's the girl that, that Skippy's in love with, and uh, she, she sort of, she doesn't really appear till about, she doesn't speak until about like two thirds of the way into the book, and um, I thought, I thought the, the book is so, it's so preoccupied with maleness and and these poor kids trying to find out some way of, of um, uh, like being a, being an Irish Catholic schoolboy is is like a, a vexed position in many ways because. Uh, you don't know any girls. There are no girls nearby, so they're, they're, it's 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 like the Virgin Suicides to the power of you know 100. Um, they're just these strange, starry objects in the distance that you know uh, are seem magical and, and untouchable, and and uh, um, which is is uh, is yeah. There's a lot of you know I won't go into that, but um, but so but I, I thought I thought I thought it, it, there needed to be a female voice there um, because Laurie causes such such. So many problems for the boys because she is this sort of like this magical object that they all sort of like crave because she's so beautiful. 
um, I wanted her to be like a speaking a speaking person, you know, who would give the perspective of to give give a female perspective. At the same time, like I didn't want her to be like she's quite a she's someone who's who's very aware of the power that her beauty has, and she's quite an amoral character because like a lot of beautiful girls, like if you're if you're 14 years old and suddenly you know, the world realizes you're really beautiful. Like, you, you are given this enormous power all of a sudden, overnight, you know. And most girls, in my experience, uh, wield that power um, mercilessly. And, uh, yeah. Um, so Such confessions, I, I gotta say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, 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 I kind of worked pretty hard in her voice. I really wanted to make it seem like, um, seem like an authentic, authentic uh, girl voice. Initially, like... Um, I talked to my girlfriend and said, like, what, what? I, I wanted it to be, the first, the first part of, she's got this monologue, and the first part of the monologue was just going to be, which is right after Skippy dies, was just her listing, when she gets up in the morning, like, all the products she puts, puts in her face, you know, um, so there's about, like, two pages of that, um, uh, but that got, that got cut, um, so, yeah, yeah. Questions? Well, uh, so, with all this material that you've excised from the book, is, are you going to, like, put it on a website so people can read it or, or somehow um, offer it to people or is it just gone? I think the tragedy is like, I mean, you like to think that it will, you'll find a use for it somewhere else, but but thus far in my experience, it never quite fits into anything else. Like if you try and use a scene or you try and use a like a character description, it always feels like it's like a transplant that doesn't quite work, you know? Um, you could have like a director's cut, like, like extended <laughs> scenes. You could. I mean, the other tragedy is that, which I learned, I mean, the lesson of this book, I think, like, every every book sort of teaches you how to write it, you know, um, and the lesson of this book was um, listen to your editor, uh, and, and uh, it's, it's, it's pretty much always better for being shorter. I mean, it's, it's hard to conceive of this book as being a short book, but um, it, it was, it was I, I kind of, ultimately, after a long, hard process of... Um, of telling my editor I wasn't going to cut it, I kind of realized that it was, it was, it just wasn't working in like in its thousand page form. It just was, the story was getting lost. And, and for it to, it to work, um, it just had to be kind of really, really, I cut like 250 pages from it, which was, which was like a really difficult thing to do, but, but um, unquestionably the right thing to do, I think. Well, given the ambition of this book, I have to ask if there were things you put your foot down and said, no, I'm not cutting this. To your editor. Uh, the Robert Frost joke. Does the Robert joke? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah uh, I think I think that was um, that was something that I thought like it's sort of extraneous, but I thought that um, that's it's I, I you know it meant a lot to me. So uh, <laughs> so we kept that in there. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. I, okay. Yes. Um, going back to the cartoons. Uh, in your list, you have Little Mermaid and Pocahontas. But you also have, I think, Lisa or Maggie Simpson. Yeah. And that's really intense. And I want to ask you... Dwarf69.com is the website. I mean, in the book, you have child abuse and the church. I, I don't want to call the book for uh, anyone. But I found it very subtle and not sensational at all, okay, the way you, you handle it. But still, you, you, you had it in the book. So uh, I want to ask you how, how you got there. Are you on that kind of shit? Uh, how I, what's, can you refine that a tiny bit for me? And um, how, how do you get there? How do you, um, how do you find the way to tell that story? Because it sounded like you want to tell that story too. 
uh, to tell the story of, of the balance. Yeah. Um, though, uh, with, with like a lot of trepidation, to be perfectly honest, because cause the things that happened in, in Ireland, they're so live. Like what happened, I don't, you, you probably know about it, but um, basically two, two reports were done in the last sort of five years that, that just rigorously documented all of the acts of abuse that, that happened. Um, and uh, these were made sort of public domain. And they are just, uh, as, as you can imagine, just really, really horrifying, horrifying, horrifying reading. And so sad and, and uh, shame-inducing. Uh, so in short, like child abuse uh, is something that you would approach with, with, with you'd really want to be uh, treat of it as delicately um, as you can. And also because like, child abuse shows up in a lot of fiction and a lot of movies and it's it's sort of in danger of becoming kind of hackneyed or, or a trope so so I really tried to do that as um, there's a certain amount of covertness uh, in, in sort of the treatment of it in the book um, and I, I tried kind of quite hard to not to sensationalize it like I, I I was more interested to be perfectly honest not in the abuse itself as in the effects of the abuse, like how does an institution deal with something as monstrous as this? Um, and I guess the point I was trying to make is that um, that in Ireland, even though you've got like this, this there was much ballyhoo about, you know, the New Ireland, the liberal Ireland, where the kind of the despotic, tyrannical church has been overthrown, like this bunch of hypocrites is gone, and now we're just... Conversation stopped. Machine ran out of tape. End of part two. End of part two. There are no additional parts. Please stop listening. End of part two. End of part two. Why are you still listening? Why are you still here? End of part two. There are no additional parts. Please do not listen further. End of part two. End of part two. Please hit the fucking stop button. Oh, what's the use?